Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. You know, it was June the 7th, 1979. I honestly don't remember anything about the day. I'm told that it happened over on Spring Creek Road there in East Ridge. But what I can tell you is that what happened that day, it's become an annual event on my calendar, marking yet another successful journey around the sun. That's the day I was born, and and I won't lie, I'm I'm pretty thankful for that day, and it's okay to, to give thanks for the day that you were born. However, I will say that the more of these dates I accumulate, the the less excited I'm about them. Something about traveling 584 million miles tends to wear you out the more and more times you do it. It's something we all have in common, not the specific day, but we all have a day that we stepped into this world and we began marking time by that same 584 million mile journey. I want you to think about your birthday for just a moment. Give thanks to God for his precious gift of life, but put a bookmark in that page and that thought for for just a moment. Now, I don't want to discourage you, but you've got another date on the calendar as well. Over the last few years, I've noticed more and more people have moved to digital calendars. If you want to talk about matters of life and death, that's sort of how I feel about my calendar. It's how my family functions and keeps everybody on the same page. It's how we know who's coming and going in the office. Now our calendars even go with us. We update something on our computers and our phones will remind us of what time we need to leave to get to our appointments on time. I've noticed more and more that other people can even help me with my calendar. If I've got a meeting planned or a lunch scheduled, it's get pretty common that I'll get an email with an invite attached to it. I just click the button, and then that meeting shows up right there on my calendar. It's gotten so intuitive that, that my computer or phone now even looks for dates and text messages or emails and offers to add those dates and times to my calendar. If somebody said, ask me, Pastor, are you available at 3 o'clock this afternoon for a meeting? I could click that link right there in my text message that says 3 o'clock and suddenly there's an appointment on my calendar. You know, there is a date already on my calendar. I don't know when it is, but I know it's there. I won't get a reminder. I certainly won't get a notification telling me when it's time to leave. You see, just like my calendar is marked on June 7th, 1979, it's also marked at some point in time that is at least 41 years and 364 days later. One of the many things that sets humans apart from our friends in the animal world is we have this ability to reflect upon our death long before it ever happens. We have the ability to think about the sum of our lives. We have the ability to think even beyond the sum of our lives. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says that he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And even though we cannot fill in the blanks for that which has not yet happened, we can do the emotional and spiritual calculus to understand the cost of our actions far beyond the basic programming of our animal friends. Now that squirrel that's out burying acorns in the backyard, he's not doing it because he's got a rational understanding of the consequences of not doing so. 
he's burying acorns because he he has an, a a sense of, of of just a need to do it in his instinct. He's not doing it because he has an accounting of how much he needs. He doesn't have a little squirrel Excel spreadsheet where he can keep track of how many he's buried and where he's buried them. He's doing that because God has given him the instinct to know how best to survive the winter and how to drive hunters crazy listening to them dig around in the leaves. It's not so with us. We calculate the cost. We, we certainly understand the consequences of our action or our inaction. And uh, to be fair, we may be willing to tolerate the consequences, but that doesn't mean that we don't recognize they exist. You see, we all have two dates on the calendar, one known and one unknown. One in which we take our first breath and one in which we breathe our last. But we need to understand that we are more than just biological creatures. Life is more than just breathing. And death is more than just the cessation of the same. In the Old Testament, death is both the event and the realm beyond the event. And we need to recognize that death is constantly casting its cold shadow over onto this side as well. We see its shadow in sickness and suffering. We see it in aging and anxiety. We see it in things like guilt and fear. But most of all, we see the shadow of death in our sin. We also know that life is more than just our biological function. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see, in Christ we have newness of life as the gospel pushes back against death and her decay. The promise of the gospel is, in fact, eternal life. In Christ, we see the shadow of death being pushed back by light. And even in those places where we are appointed to walk, sickness and suffering and, and aging, those are redeemed by the gospel to the point that Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, that these are just momentary afflictions that are designed by God to help us gain in appreciation for the life that's prepared for us in glory. So as we conclude our journey through Proverbs, I want us to consider how God's wisdom leads us to embrace life and points us to the life that we can enjoy in Christ. And as we do that, I want to first ask the question and, and seek to answer how Jesus moves us further into life. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 28 says this, In the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. Proverbs is very clear with each of us that we are on a journey. Our calendars indicate this in the sense that there is a start and there is a finish. And the road in between is charted by this mysterious interplay between God's sovereignty and our freedom. But we know that the only path that leads to life is the path of righteousness. Now, we need to pay very close attention in our contemporary moment. There is a path that leads to life. That path is righteousness, and righteousness is a standard that is set by the Creator. On paper, this is not complicated. If you go outside here out of the church and you hang a right on the road and, and go out to the, to the highway there and you, you head towards Chattanooga there on Highway 193 and let's step on the accelerator and let's get there at 100 miles an hour. 
The truth is, it won't take you long to get to Chattanooga. However, along the way, you're going to be violating some, some pretty clear standards, and there's some pretty hefty consequences to breaking those standards. And the people in St. Elmo are going to all dislike your actions because you are violating those standards. And if you don't believe those standards exist, then just look at the officer who pulls you over and is about to charge you with reckless driving and say this, officer, I was going my speed limit. You can't charge me with anything. Our society has moved from one that recognizes that there are moral absolutes to what we have now, which is a soul sickness of relativism. What exactly is relativism? Well, we hear it today. This is my truth, and this is your truth, and, and this is my opinion, which is elevated to the realm of truth. Nothing is certain anymore in the world. And we see this sickness is creeping more and more into the church. And we've been warned about this. Proverbs 14, verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Consider all the places where this subjective relativism, it really doesn't work. Do you really want the guy who's cooking your chicken at the restaurant after church today, do you really want him operating out of his own truth? You know, I know that you're supposed to cook this chicken to 165, 170 degrees in order for it to be done, but my truth says I'm going to go to about 130. You might be tempted to, uh, to say something about that. If you eat it, you're going to get really sick. What about the engineer who designs the bridge that you drive your family across every day? What if he approaches his job from a sense of relative truth where, where he built the bridge on what looked good without any concern for the mathematics of it? You want the engineer to follow a certain set of standards. You want him to follow mathematical and scientific and physical standards. What about the fellow who is controlling the switches at that little power plant there in Soddy Daisy just up the road here a few miles? We certainly hope he read the manual because, quite honestly, we like Chattanooga and we don't want to have to change the name to Chernobyl. We like that he is following standards that are agreed upon and he's not pursuing his own set of reality. We get this in everything about our lives, yet for some reason when it comes to our moral thoughts, we believe that there is a path when it comes to truth. But the Bible says there is a path that leads to life, and that is the path of righteousness, and righteousness is a standard that's been set by God. It'd be easy to look at this and simply come to the conclusion that, that life must then be found in good behavior. Just be good. Just behave. Follow the Baptist creed. Don't drink, don't chew, don't date girls who do. The problem with good behavior is that good behavior doesn't fix a bad heart. You can do all the good things, but if the heart isn't right, the good things don't matter. And our problem, we understand, is much deeper than the sum of our actions. You can be a quote-unquote good person and still be filled with nothing but death. How does that work? The Apostle Paul gives us some insight into this matter in Romans chapter 6. Beginning in verse 20, we read these words. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. 
But now you've been set free from sin and you've become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. We are going to give ourselves to something or someone. And what we give ourselves to will determine what our pathway will look like. Some of us will give ourselves to our career. That seems right, seems good, right? Make lots of money, build a nice nest egg, make sure the family's taken care of, retire early and enjoy the golden years of your life. What's wrong with that? What's wrong is that it's a dead end. Some of us will give ourselves to our families, but you say, Pastor, aren't we supposed to do that? Be good husbands, good wives, good parents. Aren't we supposed to give ourselves to our family? If it's out of order, you still are going to find yourself at a dead end. Some of us will want to fill our bellies with all the sin and folly that we can find, and it's still just a dead end. What's sad is this, is that you could spend your whole life building orphanages and serving soup at a homeless shelter and building houses with Habitat for Humanity. And at the end, all by itself, all those good things, even those, those good works are still a dead end if they come from a bad heart. Some of us will give ourselves to being good, following the rules, checking the boxes, and it's still just a dead end. You see, when you were enslaved to sin and folly, you may have been free from the demands of righteousness, but what is the end of that pathway? The Bible says it's death. The wages of sin is death every single time, I guarantee it, but there is a path that leads to life every time. But it's not being enslaved to following the law because following the law doesn't cure your sick heart. The righteousness that leads to life cannot be manufactured. It has to be granted. You know, we look to Jesus, who becomes the standard for righteousness, and we understand that our only shot at life, at finding eternal life, is found in the person of Jesus. In Christ, we are granted his righteousness because we can't make our own righteousness. And when that happens, our pathway is marked, not by our paltry efforts at trying to behave, but by a genuine desire to work for and serve the Lord. And what this does is it turns the whole system of empty religion on its head. Religion is about following rules and checking boxes and behaving, but the righteousness that leads to life through Jesus is all about our desire to please our King and to serve Him and to honor Him. If you are serving Jesus out of obligation, then your heart is in the wrong place. However, if you are serving Jesus because you want to lay your head down at night and you want to hear the Lord look at you and say, I'm pleased with what you did today. If you serve Jesus because you want to honor him and glorify him far more than you want to see honor and glory for yourself, then you're on the right pathway. Because we are set free from bondage to the law. We are liberated into love for God's law and delight in obeying him. And when we do that, then we can truly understand what life really is. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 2 says, Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Christians are the only people who can fully understand this. I would invite you today, if you've had your fill of other things, 
and you finally understand that those other things are literally dead ends. You can see the consequences of giving your life to those other things. Here's the thing. You have zero control over the consequences of your life, but you do have control over the direction you go. You can follow the one direction that goes towards life, or you can go some other way. Jesus has already accomplished all the work necessary to give you eternal life by his death, and he extends an offer to you to make you a beneficiary of his righteousness, and he frees you to serve him out of joy rather than serving him out of obligation. But listen, don't miss this. Serving Jesus, that only makes you a better employee. You want, to be, you want to serve Jesus, and you're going to be a better employee because you're going to recognize that by honoring your, your employer, you can honor Jesus. You're going to work harder. You're going to be a better employee or a better boss. Remember, if you serve Jesus, you're going to be a better spouse. If Jesus is at the top of your priority list, show me a wife who doesn't want a husband who honors Jesus more than he honors her. Show me a Christian husband who doesn't want a wife who honors Jesus more than she honors him. Show me a, a child who doesn't want a parent who honors Jesus more than the child. You want to be a better spouse, follow Jesus. You want to be a better parent, follow Jesus. Some people got their priorities all sorts of messed up. If that's you, you need to give your life to Jesus today. That's the path. All the other stuff that really matters will only be better as a result of your decision to follow Jesus. Here's the reality. If you really are following Jesus and you're walking the path of righteousness that leads to life, the fact of the matter is this, you cannot hide the living. In 1989, there was a comedy called Weekend at Bernie's that was released. It's probably not a Jesus-honoring movie, so I can't recommend it to you, but the movie was built on a pretty simple premise. A couple of guys created, uh, carried around a dead body in an attempt to convince everyone that that which was dead was really alive. And I mean, it wasn't realistic. Uh, you could tell the guy was dead, but it was a comedy after all. You can't pretend. Just think, for instance, about the weeds in your yard. They're, they're, they're hard to get rid of. I've put mulch down. I've pulled them. But it seems that the weeds always come back because they are alive. You cannot hide that which is truly alive. People are going to know. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 27 says this, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. When the Bible talks about water, you don't need to read it as someone who has indoor plumbing in a well-watered community. When the Bible speaks of water, it's talking about water as a scarce resource. I've never gone and turned on the tap and thought to myself, what a scarce resource this is. But in the Bible, water is precious. I once heard a story about an exchange student who came to America from a very poor developing country. And when the, it was time for that exchange student to go home, she was asked, what's the biggest difference that you've experienced or what has shocked you the most? And she looked at the person asking the question and she said, I think it's so strange that you Americans use the bathroom in your drinking water. In the Old Testament, in the Bible as a whole, you had to work to get water. Water was something that, that you had to go retrieve. In the Old Testament, wells were essential and precious and priceless because water was such a wonderful commodity. And so if you had a fountain, and that was a particularly remarkable sight. Today, we look at a fountain, and it's no big deal unless it's choreographed with lights and music and shooting water cannons out. If you had a fountain in biblical times, it was a remarkable sight. 
those who are on the pathway of life in the righteousness of Jesus ought to be like a fountain, ought to be a fairly visible community of people. It ought to be something that people want to see and want to experience because it's like that fountain where such a rare commodity to be put on display. However, as we do this, we need to keep our eyes open for a couple of dangers. The first one is theological arrogance, or we might say chronological arrogance. We've heard this before. We've heard the Great Commission. We've heard that we're supposed to share. We've heard that the world should know these things. We've heard all of this before. You know, in John chapter 6, Jesus offered some of his most difficult teaching about drinking blood and eating flesh. Of course, we have the benefit of knowing what Jesus was alluding to in the act of the Lord's Supper, but let's just say the first listeners were struggling to, to keep up. In John chapter 6, verse 60, we read these words. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Agreed. I mean, if the pastor stood up and said, hey, if you want to be part of our church, you got to drink my blood and eat my flesh, that may be hard teaching. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to him, do you take offense at this? Are y'all bothered by this? In today's vernacular, Jesus was looking at him and saying, are you guys triggered? What's Jesus say? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back, no longer walked with him. He was asking too much for their shallow commitment. And so Jesus looked at the 12 disciples, the ones that we know by name, and he asked them this simple question, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Because you have the words of eternal life. There's no other pathway. There's no other options. The only pathway that leads to life is marked by right relationship with Jesus. If we agree with Peter, then these words, this story can never grow old and we will never hear it enough. It is only one pathway that leads to life and it's through Jesus. Oprah cannot help you find life. Dr. Phil cannot help you find life. There is no religion or no philosophy that can help you find life. There is not even a politician or a president or a king who can help you find life. The only person who can help you find life in righteousness is the person of Jesus and like Peter said, where are we going to go? Where are you going to go? If Jesus is the one who has the words of life, where else are you going to find life? You're not. You're not. You see, if we agree with Peter, then these words, this story, will never grow old and we will never hear it enough. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it is true. It satisfies my longing as nothing else can do. I love to tell the story. Twill be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Man, what, a, what an idea 
that your theme, the thing that you are known for in heaven is that you can't stop talking about your Lord and you can't stop telling others about what he did for you. I'm going to tell you this, church. If you ever grow weary of hearing the gospel on repeat, then the fact of the matter is this. You've got a diseased heart that desperately needs to be revived or potentially even needs to be saved. So while we need to be mindful of the danger of theological arrogance, we also need to be mindful of distractions. It amazes me how many churches have lost track of what matters most. The gospel is good news for bad people, but it only happens through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. This week at our church is Vacation Bible School. Vacation Bible School has a singular focus. I get so jazzed about VBS because the singular focus is this. Every kid that walks in the door will hear the gospel, and we hope that that kid will turn around and go home and tell his parents the gospel so that we can see boys and girls and their parents saved. That's why we do what we do. That's why we decorate like we decorate because we want it to be so compelling that kids can't imagine not coming to such a fun place where they can hear the good news of Jesus. That's why we do all the work. That's why we spend all the money. That's why there's sweat. That's why there's tears. That's why there's effort. That's why there's volunteers because we want to make sure that every single child hears the gospel because that is the most important thing. That focus must always be our focus. Notice this. How many fountains are there of life? There's just one. There's lots of pathways that lead to death. This week is the, or next week is the Southern Baptist Convention. If you've watched the news or paid attention to anything on the internet, you know there's lots of drama going around, going on. There's there's lots of distractions. And the fact of the matter is, is that the Southern Baptist Convention is being ripped apart because of politics and emails and people getting in spats on stinking Twitter. It's because bad actors are arguing with each other and they're making people choose sides. I will tell you this, that you need to be praying for the convention that we're a part of because right now we do not have a singular focus. We are distracted by things that we should not be distracted by. We need to be in prayer for our denomination. What do you do next? How do you take this into the next phase of your journey to wisdom? Listen to Proverbs 24, verse 13. My son, eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such for your soul. If you find it, there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. You know, we need to listen to the Lord and all his delights. We need to enjoy the Lord and, and who he is. Listen to the words that are here. Remember the setting. Honey is probably one of the sweetest substances that a Jew could get his hands on in biblical times. What a treat to have honey straight from the comb. It's still a treat even today. Get honey and pour it all over a biscuit and there's nothing better. However, as honey is sweet to the tongue, so wisdom is sweet to the soul. Pursue it, find it, consume it, and know the benefits of doing so. As we finish this series through Proverbs, our prayer is that you have gained in your wisdom, but most of all that you have gained in your love for the Lord Jesus Christ and that you will pursue him. And as you do so, you will find that the wisdom that comes through following the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless you and keep you, and may God make you wise. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.